All right, well, good morning, High Point. Hey, listen, so this morning we are jumping into the next part of our Sermon on the Mount series, and our passage today comes to us from Matthew chapter 7, uh, Matthew 7, verses 15 through 20, and if you are able, I would love for you to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 7, 15 through 20. We continue to work our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what it says. Beware of false prophets. Everyone say beware. Beware. Who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them. Everyone say recognize. recognize. By their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father God, as we come before you this morning, uh, God, we want to thank you for this weekend. We thank you, Lord, that on this Sunday and on this weekend, Lord, we get to celebrate Memorial Day. God, we, we thank you for uh, the, the brave men and women, Lord, people who have uh, served in uh, the military, Lord, people who have served and have given their lives for this country and for this freedoms that we get to experience today. God, we we thank you for them. We are grateful, Lord, for the fact that in your sovereignty, you have decided to allow us to be born in this country, in this moment. God, we do not take that for granted. So Lord, thank you for this weekend and for what it represents. Lord, I also want to take a moment, and before we pray for uh, the sermon and for this morning, God, I also want to take a moment and pray for just all the different things that have happened in our country over the last few weeks, Lord. I pray for uh, the shooting in Buffalo, God. I pray for the shooting in Texas. God, our heart breaks for these tragedies. And Lord, we pray for those families. Lord, even this week, I just reading through the news, Lord, came across an article where all the different faces of the children who were uh, killed in Texas were shown, Lord. And I could not help but uh, get overwhelmed thinking about my daughters being there. Lord, I pray for those parents. I pray for those families. God, I pray for all these different things that have happened over the past several weeks. Lord, we continue to pray for Ukraine and all that's happening there. We're so quick to move on when something new happens, Lord. God, we pray for all these situations. We we believe that you are sovereign, Lord. Honestly, it's only your sovereignty, Lord, that keeps me hopeful, knowing that at the end of the day, we serve a God who doesn't cause these things, Lord, but you are over these things. God, I thank you for the fact that you are sovereign over each one of these things, the good and the bad. And so we pray, Lord, for your will to be done in each one of these situations. We pray, Lord, that you would, your name would be exalted. So God, we lift those families up. We lift those situations up to you. And Lord, as we talk about this topic, this idea of false teachers and false prophets, I I just pray, Father, that you would help me to have the right spirit, to have the right heart. Lord, our goal here is not to vertically judge or condemn anyone. 
We have no right to do that in light of the Sermon on the Mount, but we are called to horizontally judge. We are called to horizontally evaluate and discern. And so I pray, Lord, that that would be our spirit, but I also pray uh, that whatever measure we use, we would also use on ourselves. And I also pray, Lord, that you would help us to deal with our log, even as we worry about other people's specs. Have that be the spirit that this sermon is preached in. But also, Lord, we pray that you would be glorified and that your word would be elevated. Lord, for a long time, I thought I had really high standards when it came to false prophets and false teaching. And uh, in my study this week, I realized that my standards are not high enough in light of what the New Testament teaches. So Lord, lead this time, guide this time, and keep me from saying anything that does not come from you. We ask it and we beg it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, you may be seated. All right, so this morning, uh, what we're going to do is we are going to look at this passage under three headings. We are going to begin by looking at the reality of false prophets. Then after we look at the reality, we're going to look at the recognition of false prophets. And then we are going to conclude by looking at the response to false prophets. So the reality, the recognition, and the response. But I want to begin this morning by looking at the reality of false prophets. You see, because in this passage, Jesus is teaching us and informing us about the reality of false prophets. Jesus wants us to know that this is a very serious and prominent problem in the church today. It was back then and it still is today. And we know that Jesus wants to get us aware of the reality because in the passage, the word that he uses there right at the beginning is he uses the word beware. Beware. Everyone say beware. beware. The word there in Greek, beware, it literally means to be on guard, to be attentive, to pay attention, to have your radar up for any potential danger or threat. And what's interesting is that Jesus, the way he says it, it's in the present imperative. And so what that means, an imperative means it's a command. So he's commanding us. So for those Christians who are like, oh, you know, I don't, I don't like judging false prophets because, you know, who am I? How dare I? Right? Jesus commands us. He says, beware to command for every disciple. But then it's also in the present tense. And so what that means is, is that we are constantly to be beware, bewaring and be aware, alert and on guard. It, you never let your guard down. You got to constantly be on the lookout for false teaching and for false teachers. That is what Jesus is telling us here. Now, the question is, what is Jesus calling us to beware of? Well, he says that it's false prophets. Now, here's the thing about a prophet. In the Old Testament, a priest would represent the people to God. But a prophet would represent God to the people. And so a false prophet is someone who is misrepresenting God. Even if that's not their intention. I, I'm, I'm gonna say that here in a little bit, but I wanna make sure I make that clear. I would argue that not all false prophets know they're false prophets. Because in second, it says in 2 Timothy 3 that not only are they deceiving, but they're being deceived. So some of them genuinely believe they're preaching the word of God and the work of God, right? 
But a false prophet is someone who is misrepresenting God, someone who is preaching a false gospel, someone who is uttering untrue prophecies. That's what the word there, prophet, means. And that's what the qualifier, false prophet, means. Jesus says that those are the very people we have to be careful of. And he describes them in the text as ravenous wolves. Ravenous wolves. And and what's interesting about those two words, well, let me start with wolves. Uh, Jesus brings up a wolf because we're primarily referred to as sheep. God's our shepherd, Jesus is our shepherd, and we are his sheep. And so there was no predator that was more common to a sheep than a wolf. But he's bringing up the wolf not just because of the animal, but because that was actually a term that was used. It was like slang in that day. And both the word ravenous and the word wolves describe an individual who's not just dangerous, who's not just deadly and destructive, but someone, get this, who is greedy. Someone who is out for gain. Someone who is out for power and prosperity and prestige and a platform. That that's what he is describing for us when he talks to us about ravenous wolves. Jesus needs us to understand that this issue of false teaching and false teachers is a very dangerous and relevant problem. And I would argue that when you zoom out, if if you don't know the Bible that well, you would think this might be the only time this issue is brought up. But the reality is the Bible has been calling us to be aware of false teachers since the beginning. The first false teacher, the father of all lies, the ultimate perverter of the gospel is Satan. And in Genesis 3, that's what happens. He shows up and he, as a false prophet, preaches a false gospel. And Adam and Eve, instead of knowing the word of God and the work of God, they believe his false message. And as a result, we fall into sin. Ever since Genesis 3, the people of God have had to deal with false teachers and false prophets and false teaching. So when you look at the Old Testament, for example, in Deuteronomy numerous times, Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he warns the people of false prophets that will rise up. In the book of Jeremiah, we're going to quote Jeremiah here in a little bit. The the book of Jeremiah, again and again and again, he talks about the false teachers because Jeremiah was written in a period where the Israelites were about to be punished because of their unfaithfulness and because of their sin. But there was prophets, there was prophets in that city that were telling them, hey, you're, everything's good. God's not mad at you. You're good. No judgment coming. And so in the book of Jeremiah, again and again, Jeremiah, through the inspiration of the Spirit, is warning the people of God, the Israelites, about false teaching. Isaiah does the very same thing. So we see it in Deuteronomy. We see it in Jeremiah. We see it in Isaiah. But then we move into the New Testament, and then honestly, this whole concept goes into overdrive. Almost every single writer in the New Testament brings up false teaching or teachers. That's how dangerous it is. That's how prominent it is. So not only do we see it in the Gospels, which is where we are here, but we see it in the book of Acts. We see it in the epistles. Again and again and again, the New Testament authors are warning us and preparing us for false teachers and for false teaching. Now, you can take my word for that, or I can show you examples from the New Testament where the, old, the New Testament writers are warning us about false teaching. And I'm going to give you examples of Paul bringing it up, Peter bringing it up, and John bringing it up. We already saw Jesus bring it up. But look what Paul says in Acts 20, 29 through 32. He's leaving 
the, the area of Ephesus and he tells the elders of Ephesus, he says this, I know, get this, that after my departure, fierce wolves, same language, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, he says, be alert. Then after giving them the, here's the counterfeits to look out for, he gives them the genuine uh, word of God and work of God. He says, remembering that for three days, for three years, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. True preaching is admonishing. Then he says, now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. Again, the word of God, the Bible, the work of God, the gospel, to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up, which is the Greek word to edify, and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul here not only calls out the lies they will see and experience, but he tells them what the truth looks like. Then in Romans 16, Paul brings it up again. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. That carries the idea of the ravenous wolves we talked about. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Isn't it interesting that it's not their heads that are being deceived, it's their hearts. And even the false teacher is carried on by their own appetites, their own sinful affections. There's idolatry all over this. That's Paul. And Paul has way more to say, but that's all we'll look at from Paul. Peter, in his letter, says this. 2 Peter 2.1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction which is the same word used when we were talking about the wide road theology. Wide road leads to destruction. But it's not just Peter. Here's what John has to say. John, 1 John 4 says this, verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many prophets have gone out into the world. False prophets have gone out into the world. And then in 2 John 7, it says this. For many deceivers have, got, have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. And so this is literally a very small sample of how often the New Testament brings up this issue. So much so, in fact, I mentioned this during my prayer and I want to say it again. For a long time, I thought that I was being like condemning. Like, I, like my standards were too high when it came to this. And then I've actually like looked at what scripture says and I've realized my standards are not high enough. Like my list of false teachers has grown as a result of this week. People who are be like, mm, you know what, he's not that bad. In light of scripture, they are that bad. That's only a sample of what the New Testament has to say about false teachers. Now here's the thing. If it was an, an issue back in the New Testament era, if it was an issue back in the early church, I would argue that it's even more of an issue and a struggle today. Here's why. There's two reasons. One, false teaching is more accessible than ever. And we are more susceptible than ever. So let's look at both reasons. 
the first reason is because false teaching is more accessible than it's ever been. You see, back in the early church, each church, each region had like their own heresy they had to deal with. There was the Galatian heresy and there was the Colossian heresy, right? Each one has their own heresy that they're dealing with. And so you pretty much only had to deal with the false teachers of your city, of your region. But now those false teachers are accessible on YouTube and on Instagram and on TikTok and on Facebook and on Twitter and on podcasts. You see, you don't, you don't have to go to Galatia now to get a Jesus plus something gospel. You just got to scroll on social media. Even back in the 80s and 90s, you at least had to like stay up late and watch the televangelist at night, right? Selling you the holy handkerchief for $29.99. <laughs> but now you don't even have to stay up late. You just got to get on social media. You just got to turn on TBN. Is it TBN? I don't know. I don't watch it, so I don't know. Right? That, that, that's, that's the issue that now it's more accessible than it's ever been. You can get false teaching from Europe, California, East Coast, West Coast, wherever you want it. It's all there for you at your fingertips. It's more accessible than it's ever been. More accessible than it's ever been. And so you're scrolling and you come across a dude that's yelling really loud and has a lot of followers and a lot of likes. You're like, oh, this must be good. So one of the reasons why it's such an issue is because it's more accessible than it's ever been. But I would argue that the other reason why it's such an issue is because we are more susceptible than we've ever been. You know, one of the things that has permeated the Western church is biblical illiteracy. Christians don't read their Bibles anymore. Disciples, they get a, a verse of the day every week or so. And when you don't spend time in the genuine article, you're never going to be able to spot the counterfeit when it shows up. If the only word of God you're getting is my preaching every once a month when you show up, then when the, false, the falsehoods show up, you're going to just buy it hook, line, and sinker. Biblical illiteracy, it's at an all-time high. B- believers are not, not only are they not reading the word of God, they're not studying the word of God. They're not meditating on the word of God. They're not memorizing the word of God. So when the temptations come or the falsehood shows up, you don't even know which verse to quote. Listen, biblical illiteracy is so bad that nowadays in the Christian church, it's not even just Christian false teachers we have to look out for. Christians are just as susceptible to non-Christian personalities than they are Christian personalities. I don't know why, especially when it comes to like uh, social media and working out, like the people that we follow, the people that we quote, it's just, it gets a little ridiculous when you're like, I got my guard up over here, but I'm going to quote this random trainer who doesn't know Jesus. And, and you quote things like, I didn't come to compete. I came to change the game. What game, dude? You work part-time at Walmart. What are we talking about here? What game are you changing? 
I'm a wolf. And the hyenas are the haters. Hear me, you know, I'm a, I'm a lion. Hear me roar, right? It's got like the, the background of a lion with the eyes looking. Uh, you're not a lion. You're more like a possum, right? Like, <laughs> what are you doing? It's like, okay, when it comes to church stuff, I got my guard up. When I, but when I put on spandex, I can be stupid. <laughs> my workout clothes are on so I can listen to whatever I want and retweet whatever. I, no. Come on. We are so susceptible. And you know why I would argue we are so so susceptible? It's not just because we are biblically illiterate, but because in our cultural moment, we are so bombarded by all-out lies from the world. We're constantly being bombarded with lies from the world, full-blown lies from the world, that whenever we hear something that sounds like a half-truth, from someone who claims to be a Christian, we let our guard down. Well, this person's a Christian. I've been listening to full out lies all day. This person at least claims to be a pastor. We're so bombarded with all out lies that we just have accepted half-truths. But the problem is a half-truth is a full lie. And I would argue that part of the reason why the church is where it is and just to make sure I'm not just blaming the congregation. It's literally because of the people in my row. It's because of pastors and because of under shepherds that aren't protecting their flock. I came across a study this week that was sent to me by one of my elders, literally just came out this week, by Barna. There was a large nationwide survey of Christian pastors, people in ministry. And here's what Barna discovered. A large majority of Christian pastors do not possess a biblical worldview. Now, what do we mean by biblical worldview? Pretty basic things, actually. They believe in absolute truth. They believe the Bible's accurate and sufficient. They believe Satan is a real being. They believe in salvation by grace through faith. And they believe that Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. Those are pretty basic things. And according to this study the numbers show that only 41% of senior pastors have a biblical worldview. 28% of associate pastors, 12% of youth and children pastors. And I was giving Joe, my exec pastor, a hard time this week because it says 4% of exec pastors. I'm like, bro, why did I hire you, man? (laughs) So what this study shows is that in our nation, the world has influenced the church much more than the church has influenced the world. So if 41% of senior pastors have a biblical worldview, what percentage of their congregations do? So that is the reality of false prophets. Now, the next thing I want to look at this morning is I want to look at the recognition of false prophets, the recognition. See, because I think the question we have to wrestle with next is, if Jesus says that false prophets are our reality, that we're all going to have to deal with, then the next question is, then how do we recognize those false teachers, those false prophets? Well, Jesus in the text actually tells us, he says, the way you will recognize them is by their fruit, by their fruit. And the word their fruit literally means their produce. You will recognize them by the product. You will recognize them by their words, by their walk, by their ministry by their audience. 
So I'm going to give you under this point, this is the point we'll spend the most time in this morning, three types of fruit, three evaluative filters we can use when it comes to recognizing a false teacher. The first thing we must look at is the content they teach. The content they teach. The second thing that we must look at is the conduct they exhibit. And then the third thing is the crowd they attract. The content, the conduct, and the crowd. And here's why we're doing it this way. Because when I, when I originally started to work on this sermon this week, my temptation was just to list out all the false teachers for you. But here's why I'm not going to do that. Because if I did that, it would be like me going out and catching the fish for you. And the problem with that is if I gave you the list of all the fish, within a year, two more fish would pop up. So instead, what I'm going to do is teach you how to fish, teach you how to be discerning, teach you how to figure out what a false teacher is or not so that you can do your own fishing and then unsubscribe from half the people you're listening to. Okay? So those are the three things, their content, their conduct, and their crowd. Let's look at the first thing. First fruit to evaluate when we are discerning if someone is a false teacher or not is by looking at their content. Now, here's the thing. One of the things that, as we look at the content of a false teacher, uh, one of the things that we have to look at is that in the Western church, there are certain isms that have crept into the church. Isms that are not of God, that are actually from the world. And we're going to look at each one of these. And as I look at each one of these, you're going to see that these all look like they might be biblical, but they're actually not. It's unbiblical content. The first one is uh, narcissism, a self-centered narcissism. The second one is a false optimism. The third one is an authoritative emotionalism. And then the fourth one is a political activism. Okay, let's, let's look at each one. All these isms that have just crept into the church. The first one is self-centered narcissism. Now, that word actually doesn't come from me. It actually comes from Dr. John Stott. So John Stott, at the end of his life, he wrote a book on discipleship. And he wrote about the things he was seeing in the church. This was written years ago. And he says, one of the things that I see creeping into the church, it's not just individualism anymore. It is all-out narcissism, he says. It is a love of self. And how many Christians, I don't, I don't want to show any hands here, and this might be because of your counselor, this might be because of who you follow on social media, but man, we just got to love ourselves. Self-love. You can't love anyone else unless you love yourself first. The answer to self-hate is self-love. The problem with those, according to C.S. Lewis, is that you're still focused on self John Stott says self-love love is not only not biblical, it is anti-biblical. And he says there's three reasons for it. Get this. The first reason is because when Jesus is asked what the greatest commandments are, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. There was no third commandment. That's the first reason. The second reason, John Stott says, that self-love is anti-biblical is he says, according to 2 Timothy 3, self-love is actually a sign of the end times. People will love themselves more than they love God. 
And in the third reason, he says, why self-love is not biblical is because the Greek word for love is agape. And the definition of agape is one way, unconditional love, where you sacrifice yourself for another. But if you sacrifice yourself for yourself, that's not the biblical definition of love. So he says that instead of self-love, we as believers must be marked, get this, by self of affirmation to a degree and denial to a degree. He says, we affirm the things that are true of us because of creation and salvation and we deny and put to death the things that are true of us because of the fall. So self-love. Some of you, that might have been the only reason why God had you here. To hear that one. Self-love has permeated the American church. Self-love is the reason why we got in trouble in the first place, church. The problem is you love yourself too much. You're too self-centered, too self-focused. And so when you hear preaching that is man-centered and tells you you are the center of the, of the story, you are the hero of the story, oh man, that tickles your ears according to 2 Timothy 4. You're telling me I'm great? That's exactly what I thought. <laughs> You're telling me that Jesus is my life coach and he's here to help me meet my goals and my dreams and my aspirations and my destiny and I'm just one prayer away from a breakthrough? That's exactly what I thought. That's called wide road theology. That is a false gospel. And it leads, according to last week's passage, to destruction. Here's the thing. The reason why this, this narcissism has gotten into the church is because we have replaced exegesis with narcissism. So, so exegesis, according to the, to the dictionary, is to look at a text, because we've always think exegesis is just biblical, but it's just, exegesis is to look at a text, whether it's Christian or not, and to literally make, study it to a degree where we understand its intent, interpret it the way that the author meant for it to be interpreted. It requires for you to look at the content, the content, or the context. It requires for you to understand author's intent. That's what exegesis is of a text. I look at where it is in the passage and make sure it makes sense in light of that passage and scripture overall, and I make sure that I'm communicating the author's intent, not my agenda. But narcissistic, nar narcissistic preaching, narcissism, is you look at it and it's not the author's intent, it's your agenda. He doesn't point to Jesus because Jesus says in Luke 24 when he's walking on, on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, he says he takes all the law and all the prophets. He takes the whole Old Testament and shows how it points to him. But narcissist Jesus shows how it all points to you. It's directly contradicting what Jesus says we should do with Scripture. And so because of that, because of that, and in light of that definition, one of the things that we have to be careful of is that there's two types of narcissistic preaching. There's two types of man-centered preaching. The first is licentious preaching. We'll talk about what that means in a second. The second is legalistic preaching. So the licentious church says it's all about do. Do this, do this, do this, do that. The legalistic church says it's all about don't. Don't do that and don't go there and don't say that. But here's what's so ironic. 
legalistic churches are, are dwindling in size over time. Like they're not as popular as they were a few decades ago. And here's what's, what happened. Right around the 1960s and 70s, megachurches started popping up. And here's what the megachurches would say. Hey, forget about that legalistic don't church. We are planning, this is in your grandmother's church. We're planting a licentious do church. So instead of don't do that, we're going to give you four steps every week on what you should do instead. Four steps on how to be a better parent. Three steps on how to get your spiritual breakthrough. Four steps on how to have a great marriage. And what's funny, they think they're so different, but they're not. The, the, it's literally the, the other side of the law coin. The one church was preaching don't, and they're preaching do. The problem with both is that they're both self-centered, focused on the person saving themselves. One's preaching don't, the other one's preaching do, and neither are preaching done. Both are preaching horizontal don'ts and do's, and none of them are preaching vertical don'ts. It's all up to you. See, we're quick to call out the licentious false teachers, but the legalistic ones, that's the church I grew up at. I don't know if I can call people. Both just as self-centered. Both are just as it's up to you. You do it. Heck, a lot of people, uh, Frank Turek, uh, the, the apologist, Frank Turek says, the reason why it has been so easy to talk Christians out of, the, uh, out of Christianity is because a lot of them were never talked into Christianity. <laughs> so if you grew up in a don't church or in a do church and you walked away, you didn't walk away from the gospel. You walked away from a, a church, but you didn't walk away from the gospel, the true gospel. That's what it is. That many of us are so quick to believe a different gospel because we never heard the original one. We never heard the real one. It was either don't do this or do this. But every week, you just get more steps. And if you get three steps every week, whether you're at a legalistic church or a licentious one, if you get three steps every week, how many steps is that after 52 weeks? After a year, two years, four years, a decade. At the end of every sermon, you're either hearing don't, do, or done. That is what has permeated the Western church. And here's the thing. In order for, because the, prop, the solution isn't that great, because essentially you're saving yourself. You better do good or you better don't, don't do bad because God will get mad at you. Because the solution isn't that great, the problem isn't that bad. The problem can't be that bad because if at the end I'm going to tell you it's up to you, I can't really tell you how serious the issue is. That's why in a lot of these churches, in a lot of these pulpits, the problem is never you. Oh, you, you know, you're, you're struggling, but it's because the, enemy, the enemy's against you. It's the enemy. It's your haters. No, no, no. The problem is you. You are a broken, depraved sinner. And so you need a perfect, sacrificial savior. But if I'm going to point you to you at the end as the answer, I can't really tell you how bad the problem actually is. It's so funny that, that, that churches like this talk about love, 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 but they actually end up cheapening love because true love needs to be beloved in Christ because of nothing we've done. 
But what seems like this very wide road at the front end becomes very narrow at the end because it's up to you. God will only love you if you don't or do, not because Jesus has already done it. Are you tracking with me? And so as a result, when you preach a no cost, no confrontation, consumeristic gospel, Jesus doesn't need to be a savior because you're saving yourself. So Jesus just becomes an inspirational example, a tweetable teacher to round out your spiritual portfolio. Paul says this. When we add anything, whether it's the do or the don't, when we add a do or a don't to the done, here's what happens. Because this is what's happening in Galatia. Paul says, I am astonished. Everyone say astonished. That you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. And there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Everyone say accursed. Let him be damned, condemned. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. This was the passage that rocked me. This is the passage where I, I literally got to a place where the Lord just convicted me where it's like, I show way too much grace to false teachers. If it's not the gospel, if it's Jesus plus do or Jesus plus don't, it's a false gospel. It's a false gospel. And he says there is no other gospel. There's only one true gospel. This is the passage that rocked me. Because I show grace where God doesn't tell me to. This, these are life or death matters. There are people being deceived on the wide road to destruction. But we don't want to offend the popular Instagram guy. So, narcissism. Another thing, you know, it's not just a self-centered narcissism. It's a false optimism. False optimism. You see, someone who is preaching a, a false gospel, it, it, it doesn't bring up things like sin and atonement and propitiation and substitution. You don't bring any of that stuff up because at the end of the day, it's up to you. And so when you preach a false gospel, what ends up happening is you, you come up with this false optimism and everything is great. And God is for you. And God loves you. You are this special, unique snowflake. You're like no one else. And God is here to help you meet your goals and satisfy your dreams. It's all about you. It's all about your destiny and your breakthrough and your potential. And everyone in the crowd's like, oh, of, of course. How did I not know this? You did. That's why it tickles your ears. Because it's a false gospel. 
That, that's what we're getting at. That, that's why it's a false optimism. And here's the thing. It, it isn't just happening today. It was happening back in the Old Testament. Look what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 23 about the false prophets. And this is actually the Lord talking. Jeremiah is writing, but the Lord's talking. It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, fulfilling filling you with vain hopes. Again, there's the idle language then again. We talked about appetites earlier. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. Listen to this. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord. Stop there. We're so quick to always blame the teacher. The Bible blames the hearer just as much as the teacher. We're going to read in a passage in a little bit where it says that the hearers want their ears to be tickled. They want to be told everything is good. They want to be told they're the center of the universe. And then it says, I'm going to read verse 17 again. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. And then, I, I don't have the quotes here, but in Jeremiah 6, 14, and in Jeremiah 8, 11, Jeremiah says that these false teachers, they say, they, 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 they preach peace, peace, where there is no peace. It's a false optimism. Everything is great. You're good with God. No issues here. It's a false optimism. And what's interesting is that this false optimism doesn't just affect their teaching, but false teachers tend to have optimism about other false teachers. So you know you're listening to a false teacher when they're asked about other false teachers. They're like, oh, we can't judge them. They associate with them. They approve of them. They do conferences with them. This is one of those guilty by association moments. And I, I would argue that the reason why they lower the standard when it comes to judging other false teachers is because they don't want you to use that standard on them. So I can't judge my brother in Christ. Look at how many people are following him on the gram. And here's one of the passages that people, I know that there's people here right now and you're sitting like, oh, we're, this is so judgmental. I can't believe we're doing this. I was, you know, my life was changed by this prosperity pastor, blah, 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 right? Like, but whoever, whoever, there's people here who are getting defensive because how dare we judge? And, and if you know your Bible, the verse that people use when too much judging is happening, I'm going to give you the verse that you can use to argue that, and then I'm going to show you how that's not a good argument. So I'm going to make your argument better before I destroy it, okay? <laughs> Philippians 1, this, this is the passage they love. Philippians 1, 15 through 18. Paul's in prison. He's writing to the church in Philippi, and he says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that, I, uh, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Verse 17. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. So people look at this, this passage, and they say, we have to be careful when we judge false teachers. Because Paul says here, it doesn't, we don't, regardless of their motivation, as long as they're preaching Christ, we have to give them grace. Well, here's the thing. I don't know what the motivation of these false teachers are. The problem is they're not preaching Christ. 
I'm not judging their heart. I'm judging what they're saying. And if what they're preaching is not Christ, we have to call that out because then it's a false gospel church. Oh, we can't judge Philippians 1. No, no, no. I don't know what their heart is saying, but I know what their mouth is saying. And if it's not preaching Christ, then we are called to horizontally judge that. I would not be a good under shepherd if I just let that slide. Hey, let the wolves in. Hey, they're wearing some sheep's clothing. Oh, just let them in. We don't want to, we don't want to judge. Problem is they're not preaching Christ. They're preaching salvation by works. They're preaching either don't or do, but they're not preaching done. So, narcissism, optimism. Another one is an authoritative emotionalism. And here's what I mean by authoritative emotionalism. There's nothing wrong with emotions. If there was, I wouldn't be able to preach because I'm a very emotional person. But emotionalism is when you put your feelings over facts. It, it used to be during the uh, uh, Enlightenment age, uh, what Descartes says that, you know, I think, therefore I am. But in our cultural moment is I feel, therefore I am. If I feel it, then it's true. And my truth, which is such a stupid concept, there's no such thing as my truth. There's the truth, right? When my truth makes, without how I feel, it's my truth. What are you going to do? What can you say? This has permeated the American church. And so now you got preachers that will get up and they'll say, oh, I got a word for you this morning, church. I got a word for you this morning. The Lord gave me a word for you, church. Oh, the Lord gave me a word for you. Listen, if the word that you're about to say that the Lord gave you isn't from the Bible, it isn't from the Lord. If there's no chapter and verse, it ain't from the Lord. I don't care what the Lord told you. Listen, if you want to know what God is saying, read his word. And if you want to hear God's voice out loud, read his word out loud. So when a dude gets up, I heard, I heard a pastor the other day do it. He got up, he's like, oh, church, I got a word for you. And they were in Exodus, and they're looking at Moses and the Israelites, and they're at the Red Sea. And he's like, oh, church, I got a word for you. And everyone's like, ah, yeah, you got a word. And he's like, and here's the word. The word the Lord gave me is come through dripping. And everyone's like, ah, come through dripping. And the whole sermon was, you're Moses, you're the Israelites, and whatever your, your problem is, is the Red Sea, and God's going to break the Red Sea, and you're going to get through that Red Sea, and there's a, there's a blessing on the other side. And you're going to come through that Red Sea dripping. I've never heard God say dripping anywhere in Scripture. <laughs> that must be in the Hebrew. I don't know where that is, but that's not in the Bible. Because that story isn't about us. That story, according to Jesus in Luke 24, it points to him, not to us. So when someone says the Lord gave me a word and the word is about you and how you're the center of the story, that's not from the Lord. I don't care what you feel. I don't care what you think you heard. That's where we are. And this is why False teachers almost always preach from narratives, from stories. You'll never find a false teacher in Galatians or Ephesians or Colossians. No, you can't. 
because I can't make it about you because it's clearly about another church. You won't find it. It's always some random Old Testament story you've never heard or some gospel story. Why? Because with a story, you can make it about whoever you want. It's implicit theology. With an, with an epistle, it's explicit theology. Paul's already applying it, so you got to say what Paul says. You're not going to hear him preaching on Romans 3. So some rant, hey, 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 you're Abraham. We got to be more like Abraham. Here are four steps on how to be more like Abraham. Here are seven steps on how to be more like David. You know what the problem with that is? That if you preach a sermon and you tell someone to be more like Abraham or more like David and you never point to Jesus, you can preach that, ser that same sermon in a synagogue in a mosque and nobody would be offended. If you tell someone to be more like Abraham, a Muslim will be like, amen. And a Jew would be like, amen. If you never bring up Jesus, who are you offending? We're not called to be more like Abraham. We're called to be more like Christ. That's where we are. Paul says, it's not me. Paul says in Colossians 2.8, he says, do not be taken captive by empty philosophies. You know what the word there empty means? It means stupid, foolish, hollow. Paul says, don't be stupid. When you know the real word and work, you'll be able to spot a false word and work. It is wide road theology. And the last ism is, and this one's big in Memphis, is political activism. It got real quiet in here. Now, let me say this. We said this during the politics series we did over a year ago. I believe that as uh, proclaimers of God's word, there are issues and policies that we should talk on. If the Bible talks about it, we should talk about it. We should never hold back when it comes to issues the Bible talks about. But we should never, under any circumstances, use the pulpit to support an individual or an ideology, to support a party or a platform. That is called syncretism, church. When you take Christianity and add something to it, that's the Galatian heresy. So if in order to be a part of our church, you have to be a Christian and a Republican, a Christian and a Democrat, a Christian and a Libertarian, a Christian and a Liberal, that Christian plus is a false gospel. That's called syncretism is what it's called. And yet it happens all throughout the pulpits and no one even thinks twice. Amen, brother, you preach it. We as believers, we as the church of Jesus Christ are to be known by the Savior we believe in, not the candidate that we vote in, vote for. So we look at their content. The next thing we look at is their conduct. See, because in the text, Jesus says about their conduct, he mentions that they, you will look at their fruit and you will look at their walk, you will look at their life. As a matter of fact, Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, I believe, he says to him, make sure you keep a close eye, not just on your doctrine, but on your life. 
Watch closely, not just what you are teaching, but how you are living. And so when it comes to evaluating a false teacher, we don't just evaluate their content. We also have to evaluate their conduct. And according to the passage, like we said, because of that term, uh, that phrase ravenous wolves, it's the idea of someone who's not just dangerous, not just uh, 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 someone who can be destructive, but it's someone who is greedy, someone who is hungry for power and for prestige, for numbers and for platform. We are to watch and you know what I've noticed in the American church over the last, what, probably, probably two, three years, to be honest, that there are people who maybe had the right theology, had the right content, but then we find out about their conduct and you're like, what the heck? They passed the first test, but not the second. Ravi Zacharias comes to mind. Mark Driscoll comes to mind. People who maybe theologically weren't necessarily off the reserve, but then their teaching was fine, but their living was not. Jesus says we got to evaluate both. Does their life back up their teaching? That's how we evaluate whether someone is or isn't a false teacher. Uh, Dr. William Barclay puts it this way. Jesus in the passage, he mentions the idea of thorn bushes and figs, grapes and thistles. And William uh, Barclay says this, there was a certain thorn, the buckthorn, which had little black berries, which closely resembled little grapes. There was a certain thistle, which had a flower, which at least at a distance might well be taken for a fig. The point is real and relevant and salutary. There may be a superficial resemblance between the true and the false prophet. The basic fault of the false prophet, though, is self-interest. So it might look genuine, and then you get close and you're like, mm, this isn't the fruit of the Spirit. So we look at their content, we look at their conduct, and then the third thing we look at is we look at the crowd they attract. Listen, the message you preach will always determine the masses that you attract. Always. They will always determine the masses that you attract attract. Dr. Uh, John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, it is nearly always the case, get this, that false prophets will attract avowed unbelievers as well as nominal and carnal believers. He appeals to the natural man and carefully avoids anything that is offensive to man's proud fallen nature. He makes a point of being attractive, likable, and of giving no offense. That's the type of person that is attracted. And then look what it says in Isaiah, because again, we're, we're quick to blame the teachers and not the hearers. Look what it says in Isaiah 30, verse 9. It says, For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, Do not see, and to the prophets, Do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And then in the New Testament, Paul warns Timothy about this. 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, it says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, 
and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, get this, when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching, itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, their epithumias, their idols, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So you will know a false prophet not just by their content and by their conduct, but by the crowd they attract. And it could be a really big crowd. Jesus says that on the wide road, there are many. And man, we're quick to see. If, if, if the room is full, it must be from God. Hey, that thing grew really fast. It must be from God. Well, weeds grow really fast too. Paul says that our preaching, he says this to Timothy. He says that our preaching should be, the word of God should be rightly handled and it should be used to teach, reprove, correct, and train in righteousness. Why? So that the man of, and woman of God may be complete and equipped, not lacking in anything. But when you don't receive that kind of preaching, what happens is, is that you get Ephesians 4, where you have spiritual infants who get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. When you don't preach the right message, the gospel, you don't end up giving people the right mission, which is discipleship. And so since the message is about them, the mission ends up being about them as well. So that's the reality of false prophets. We've looked at the recognition of false prophets. And I want to conclude this morning by looking at the response to false prophets. You see, because in this passage, Jesus actually tells us not just how to respond to the daily ongoing battle with false prophets. See, because that's essentially what he's doing, right? In this text, Jesus is telling us, hey, beware of the reality of false prophets. Beware that you are going to have an ongoing daily battle against false prophets and false teachers. But what's beautiful about Jesus is that even in this passage, he's doing that fully knowing that in order to truly win the battle against false prophecy, he would have to one day deal with the ultimate false prophet. He would have to one day deal with the ultimate false teacher or who he calls the father of lies, the perverter of the gospel. And that ultimate enemy, that ultimate enemy, the ultimate problem is Satan. He is the father of lies. He is the ultimate deceiver. He is the ultimate Perverter. And here's the thing that Jesus knows that we tend to forget. Jesus knows Satan's schemes. And so often when it comes to Satan or satanic things, we think that Satan's going to show up at night when the lights are off and things are scary. Oh, that's demonic. I don't know. Satan might be over there. But Satan is way more likely to deceive you than he is to scare you. Jesus knows that because of his schemes, Satan is way more likely to put a lie in your head than he is to put his fangs in your skin. That's why Jesus calls him a false teacher. He calls him the father of lies. That's why Jesus says, get this, that the truth will set you free. Not just his word, but his work. It will set you free. Think about it. If you reverse engineer what Jesus is saying there, that the truth will set you free, the implication is, is that we're in captivity. The only reason why we should be set free is because we're in captivity. We've already believed the lie. 
we've already fallen into Colossians 2.8. We have fallen victim. We have become captive to the empty philosophies, the, the human-based wisdom, the wide-road theology, the false gospel that Satan preaches. And so when Jesus says the truth will set you free, the implication is you're already in bondage. And so I came to set you free, not just intellectually, but spiritually. And Jesus came to set us free. He came to defeat Satan at two levels. He defeated Satan in the desert and he defeated Satan on the mount. By defeating Satan in the desert, he gives us a pattern to follow. But by defeating Satan on the mount, he gives us a power to be fueled by. The first way Jesus defeats Satan is that in the desert, Matthew 4, Satan shows up and he does what he always does. He, he manipulates and he misrepresents and he perverts the gospel. He uh, uh, misrepresents the word of God. And what does Jesus do? He gives us a pattern to follow by turning to the word of God. Jesus and his authority could have shut Satan down. But he quotes scripture in order to give us an example, in order to give us a pattern. And so now we as believers have a pattern to follow when it comes to false teaching. We are to not only read the word of God, we are to study the word of God. We are to meditate on the word of God. We are to memorize the word of God so that something, when something other than the word of God is presented to us, we can spot it. We can call it out. The only way to respond to a false gospel is with the true gospel. But Jesus didn't just defeat Satan in the desert. He also defeated Satan on the mount because we are told that Jesus, we said earlier that in, in, in Colossians 2.28 that we are taken captive. We are captives. We are prisoners to the lies that Satan has preached. It says in Ephesians 2 that the sons and daughters of disobedience are literally under the power of the prince of the power of the air, which is Satan. But then in Luke chapter 4, Jesus in the synagogue, he reads from the scroll and he reads the scroll. He says, I have fulfilled this in your presence. He says that I, one will come who will preach freedom to the prisoners and will set the captives free. And the person he is talking about is himself, fully knowing that the only way to ever win the, the battles is to win the overall war. And listen, because Jesus did what he did, here's what this means. And this is something that a false teacher will never tell you. If that is the gospel, then that means Jesus is the gift and he is the blessing. Because false teachers will tell you all the time, ah, I just feel that the, be the, the, the best is yet to come. We're going to open up that Red Sea and God's going to give you that blessing. Man, if you have enough faith, you're going to get that breakthrough. According to the gospel, God's already given us the blessing. Why are we talking future tense when I've already been given Christ and I am in him? And I am fully loved and accepted and approved. Why is the blessing just around the corner, right over the horizon? It's always coming up. We just want a new revelation, God. Well, according to Hebrews 1, the ultimate revelation of God is Jesus Christ. So what are we doing here? Is Jesus not enough? Jesus is our gift. He is our only hope. So as a result, here's what we need to do as Bereans, like the Bereans in the book of Acts. The Bereans in the book of Acts, they had Paul preaching to them. And everything the brother said, they're like, hey, good, we're going to check to see if that's what scripture says. So I want you to know that I'm going to give you a set of questions here that I want you to use when you're evaluating false teaching. 
And I want you to know that the same measure I am calling you to use on other preachers, I want you to use on me. I don't want you just to turn your brain off or close your Bible because it's will talking. No, at the end of the day, we have to use the same measure we're using on others. The goal of this sermon is not to vertically condemn anybody. It's not to vertically judge anyone. Only God can do that. But we are called to horizontally judge, to evaluate, to discern. And you know what? We, should, we are called also to pray for those people and ask God, if they're truly being deceived, for God to change their theology, for God to change their heart, for God to change their message. Instead of condemning, we should be praying for those individuals. Not in a spirit of pride, but in a spirit of, by the grace of, only by the grace of God, there go I, right? Like, like Augustine says. That's how we should be. And so as we conclude, I want to give you these questions. And you can take pictures of it if you want. Um, we're also going to post them on social media later this afternoon. But these are the questions we should be asking whenever we are examining or evaluating teaching or preaching, including my own. Number one, does the sermon confront your sin or make you feel comfortable in your sin? Does it call you to re repentant belief in the gospel or to religious behavior in the law? Next, does the sermon cause you to be transformed by the word or to be conformed to the patterns of this world? Is the overall sermon man-centered or gospel-centered? Does it point you to Christ's vertical done or your horizontal do or don't? Is the gospel being preached the genuine gospel, narrow gate and way, or a different gospel, wide gate and way? Does the sermon exalt the person and work of the Savior or the person and works of the hearer? Does the preaching of the word of God, the Bible, point to the work of God, the gospel? In the passage being preached, is the passage being preached in its proper context or is it being used outside of its original context? Is it based on the author's intent or the speaker's agenda? What type of language, this is an important one, what type of language is being used to describe humanity? Are we good people in need of a hand or, sinf or sinful people in need of a savior? Is our primary problem external in nature or internal in nature? Next question. Is the sermon grounded in God's authority, absolute truth, or in man's authority, subjective opinion? Is the word of God being rightly handled? Is it being used for teaching, rebuking, reproof, correction, uh, exhortation, and training in righteousness? Is the sermon centered on God's wisdom or human wisdom? Does it lead you towards the narrow gate and way or the wise gate and way? And then last question. Is the purpose of the sermon to entertain and enable the sinner or to edify and equip the saint? So take pictures of that. It'll be on social media later. But these are the questions we have to ask. We have to. If we are going to have the same standards that the New Testament has. Listen, as followers of Jesus, we have been entrusted with a deposit, it says, in 2 Timothy 2. That deposit is the word of God and the work of God. We are going to be held accountable as a church, as a generation, on how we stewarded the deposit that was been given to us. And I believe that in order for us to steward that deposit, we must not just be people who exalt the truth, but we must also be people who expose the lie. Amen. We're so glad that you're here with us. My name is Whitney Clay, and this is Justin Dandridge. Hey, everybody. <laughs> and we're so glad to be with you for Church at Home. And we've just experienced an incredible 
worship time. Yes. And then before that, the teaching from Pastor Will, which was so yeah, good. So good. So great. It's been cool to sit here and kind of talk with our team about yes. what we're processing, what the Lord's yeah, teaching each well, of us. Just this sermon right here, but the series in total for sure. But yeah. This one has definitely been great and like revealing in so many different ways for us. So it's been so good. Mm -hmm. Olivia is moderating today, so yes. she would love to chat with you on Facebook and Church Online. You can let her know your prayer requests or maybe even what the Lord is teaching you. Or if there's, mm -hmm. I know some of you have been asking questions on there, so if there's questions you're having, she would love to chat with you. Mm -hmm. And then right above Justin's head is a QR code. So I think it's on your right side yeah that way and so if you want to pull out your phone and scan that qr code we would love to know more mm -hmm. about you where you're watching from we'd love to connect with you and be able to talk with you to figure out how we can resource you for doing church at home right yes. where you live um but today we want to continue the conversation um with you and kind of help you as you're processing maybe you're with your group or maybe mm -hmm. you're just by yourself um kind of what the lord is teaching you and olivia would love to know that too so make sure you tell her things that are standing out to you yes, um, in the sermon but we read matthew 7 Mm -hmm. 15 through 20, um, talking about false prophets today. Mm -hmm. And uh, as Justin and I were talking about different verses, because Pastor Will hit a lot. Yes, he did. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure he could have did a whole different, we need a part two, I'm pretty sure. I thought about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it was so good. But he hit a lot of verses. We wanted to read one that uh -huh. kind of stood out to you, yes, to us, for sure. um, in light of our conversation. Yes, Galatians 1, 6 through 10. Um, I'll read this real quick. Um it says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not, there, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, if an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking the, I am now seeking the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Hmm. Um, and that was super cool that Will brought that up again, because recently at our 20-somethings, the house, so we call it, um, we walked through the whole book of Galatians. Yeah. and. That was so great, getting so deep into um, this book where Paul is talking about false teachers almost every mm -hmm. chapter. Um, and again, it brings up that we definitely need to be in the Word as believers. That way we know what's the genuine article yeah. and like what is false teaching. And again, we need to be taking time. Um, again, the Word always says to... Let us meditate on the word. Let it be on our hearts and our minds so, so yeah. often because we have problems like these. Well, and that passage brings up a lot of mm -hmm. things. You know, it talks about, it reminds us of the true gospel. And he's mm -hmm. like, don't turn away from that. But then it also says, like, am I seeking the approval of man? Yes. And there's a lot of preaching today that seeks the approval of men yes. and doesn't necessarily drive home the heart of the gospel. And I think that's something that probably all of us fall into, right? Like when mm -hmm. we're listening to different things or like Pastor Will said, he saw that quote and he's like, oh, that's so yeah. good. And then when you really stop, like you said, and look at it or evaluate it in light mm -hmm. of scripture, we're like, man, that's not really what I thought it was. Like, that's not really saying the gospel. That's yes. saying it's still about me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's that gospel plus something. And yeah. again, it was so great um, bringing up like we love to cling to our preferences and our agendas and our, our ideas. And again, us as sinners, 
none of our hearts are aligned mm-hmm. to the gospel completely yeah. at all. Um, so again, of course, when we hear something that tickles our ears or hearts and we want to add something to the gospel, yeah. then yeah, that's pretty much what we all do. But when we stay firm in the gospel and that's our foundation, um, again, we want to make sure that is what we're leaning into yeah. instead of just, oh, let me add this and that because that can get so exhausting when we put oh, I have to do this or I don't need to do this. And the gospel is beyond sufficient and adequate. And that's one of the questions like Pastor Mm -hmm. Will gave us in our sermon discussion questions, which are going to pop up at the end of this that you can use, you know, to continue your discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, One of them says, in light of the criteria given in the passage, the content they teach, the conduct they exhibit, or the crowd they attract, what are some examples of false teaching that you've been exposed to in your own Christian walk? What about the teaching or content was false or unbiblical? Mm -hmm. And what you said, that's what really struck me is that maybe sometimes it's not really blatantly, mm-hmm. like it's not as easy to pick yeah. up, right? But when you hear that religious do or that religious don't do, mm-hmm. you know, like the law of like, don't do this, you got to do all these things or do all these things and don't do this. Both of those are adding to the gospel. And so it's Jesus plus this list of laws or Jesus plus this list of things I have to do to get better. And I can't do that. Like mm-hmm. it's just Jesus. That's all I need. And so I think when I saw that question, I was like, man, how often do we hear Jesus plus yes. something? And plus, as we uh, talked about uh, earlier today, uh, just a moment ago, how false teachers not even are aware that they're yeah. teaching false doctrine. And it can they can come off so convincing because they truly believe what they know, probably because they've grown up or mm-hmm. someone they really admire is teaching them, teaching them whatever that is. Yeah. And they say it with so con- so much conviction that I'm like, yeah, I, I, yeah, I can believe that. I mean, if you say it so vigorously, of course it must be true. But again, that's why we need to go back to right. being the word that the Lord has bestowed on us yeah. um, to be in so, so consistently and yeah. never like just be like, oh, I'll read, you know, whenever. Right. But being really uh, steadfast in that is super important. Because if we're consistently in the word, mm-hmm. then we're able, like you said earlier, to know the truth, like to and to know what's false yes. and to pick it up. Maybe a little easier than we could before. Yes. And I love like being in the house this past semester, going through Galatians, being in the word with other believers mm-hmm. as well was so, so like profoundly impactful to me because um, I see stuff in my own little, you know, vision of, of ways, but to have other believers with their different minds yeah. that the Lord has given them and to say something like, oh, I would have never thought of that mm-hmm. in a million years is super, super important. So again, we love that you guys can like have Bible studies at home yeah. um, with neighbors, friends, families, and uh, again, get to discuss and talk about the word through these questions yeah because you're doing what we're doing right here and we're learning and growing too exactly (laughs) and i love uh one of the things that he said that really stood out to me was like if i'm the the solution then Mm -hmm. the problem really isn't that big so So if i can Mm -hmm. if i can solve it and that's a gospel a false gospel that Mm -hmm. we hear a lot right like well it's not it's not really that bad it's not really you and the truth is like sin really is that bad and it really is in me and all of me and all the ways and it's only by the grace of God that I'm saved there's nothing I can do to earn or deserve it and so when you realize that you realize Mm. I have a big problem and I need a big solution which is only Jesus (laughs) and then I I got convicted because sometimes I you know talking with someone it's like oh there they might be going through something I'm like oh everything besides you is the problem mm-hmm. everything besides you is just out of whack this, and it's not this. you but really 
for the most part, it is our own hearts. Yeah. It is like what we got going on in our perspective a lot of times as well. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm like, oh, I'm, you know, not really going to the heart of the matter or saying like, hey, apply the gospel to your heart or your yeah. mind or hands. Yeah. Um, and just everything else is a problem, which is not great. So, Well, and daily, like as believers, yes. I need to remind myself of the gospel. Yes. I need to remind myself that I'm a sinner saved by grace. And at the same time, if you're out there and you're watching and maybe today Pastor Will's message drove home that point for you that you realize you have a sin problem and you need Jesus, we would love to help you step into that relationship with him and know what it means for him to be your Lord and your Savior and to be reminded of the gospel daily. And so if that's you, would you tell Olivia? Would you uh, fill out the QR code? If you have questions, maybe you're just wondering what all that even means. Like you're like, man, I realize sin is a big deal and I can't save myself. That's the truth of the gospel. And we would love um, to tell you more about Jesus and why following him is the best thing ever. Um, And so fill that out or talk to Olivia and we'll reach back out to you. Um, I know that Pastor Will mentioned those evaluation questions too, Mm -hmm. because I love that he said he wanted to be held to the same standard that he's holding other people. Yeah, that's so encouraging to like hear your pastor say that again. He's just like, yeah, apply this to everyone else. Right. But then like, oh. Not me, probably. You know, don't don't worry about me. I'm good. Um, so it's super cool. He can be that authentic and like yeah. you know transparent with that also. And we're gonna put those on our social media accounts um, tonight. So make mm-hmm. sure that you look for those. You can always rewind the sermon too and take a picture of them if you want. Oh have yeah, them. it was quite a bit of them. Yeah. So, but um, I think all of them were just made for reproof yes. and rebuke. Because uh, again, we need we we need all of that. Um, during these times because again we can be uh, bamboozled and hypnotized Mm -hmm. by how susceptible we are already and then the fact that we have access to so many different platforms right um, like we're hearing stuff more than any other time in history because you can just pick and choose what you like like oh that Mm -hmm. speaks to me or that's about me let me take that oh yeah or this person or this woman says stuff that I really really like to hear right usually and I'm like oh I probably prefer to listen to this person Mm -hmm. than actually read a book in the Bible which is again can be super convicting but again that's great for allowing us to get back to the gospel to the word to um, what the Lord wants us to know and see. Yeah, and we would encourage you, if you're not spending time in God's Word daily mm-hmm. to do that, uh, there's resources on our website, lots of different things that you can use. But if you have questions about even how to get started, reach out to us. Uh, use that QR code or chat with mm-hmm. Olivia. We'd love to help you know what it means to just pick up God's Word and then to be able to understand it. Yes. And sometimes that can feel intimidating, mm-hmm. but it is the written Word of God and it speaks to us. And so um, we want to help you get to know that so that you can know who Jesus is and know the gospel and be able to pick out those truth from the lies. Um, But I love too how you said that aspect of having that in community too. Mm -hmm. And that's important. And so if you're local, uh, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday at 9 and 11. We'd love to help you get into community. The house is our 20-somethings group. And that's been incredible. It's been awesome being a part of the last couple semesters. And again, um, just walking through Galatians and um, Ryan doing an amazing job. Shout out to Ryan. Um, (laughs) But Ryan doing an amazing job walking through each verse, verse by verse, yeah, and talking about false teaching and false doctrine is, again, it was like, yeah, we need to be aware because again, and Paul and Paul in uh, Galatians was talking about like I'm bewildered that you guys are choosing a false gospel mm-hmm. 
compared to the gospel that we have and the peace and yeah. security that we have in there. You want to add stuff to it, it's like, what are you doing? But yeah. again, I can't say anything. I'll be big hypocrite <laughs> about like, oh, these Galatians don't know what they're doing. <laughs> but yeah, like it's hard to battle that daily. But again, in community, it's, it's, it's definitely uh, a yeah. different sense of peace when it comes down to that. And it brings that um, like accountability mm-hmm. or that, like you said, that correction, like you thought maybe I should do this. And they're mm-hmm. like, hey, what about this? Or they help you see, reveal things and see things mm-hmm. differently. And so if you're local and we can help you step into community, we would love to help you do that. Yes. Um, and at the same time, if you're watching around the world or wherever you are and you're doing church at home, we have a lot of resources that we would love to pass on to you. So you can do this right here in your home, in your community and have mm-hmm. those discussions with people. So please let us know you're watching and reach out because we would love to be able to resource you. Um, But we are praying for you. We hope that you continue to meditate kind of on this sermon and on God's word and maybe evaluate some of the things that you're listening or hearing um, in light of the gospel and in light of God's word and um, be able to discern those things this week. Um, But we love you guys and we're praying for you and we'll see you next Sunday. All right, see you guys.